going to be with you. I've mentioned before that one of Jesse's spiritual gifts, one of the things that she's just absolutely blessed with is that she always knows what the best gift to give is. Um, she, she just has this insight into what it is that people like they value, but what it is that they, they see as something special. And she has a way of being able to find those things and being able to find them to give to them in an affordable way, which is just another level of like spiritual gifts. So I'm always pleased to see other people open gifts that Jesse has given. Because I don't have that, and I would dare to call it a superpower. <laughs> I don't have that superpower. I never really know what kind of gift to give somebody. I have a hard time. I, I know what I would like, and I know what I'd like for you to give to me. <laughs> for me to get a pure head and to try to think about like, what is it that, that would be a blessing to you? Like, for some reason, it's hard for me to, to, to give into that mindset. Does anybody else like that, or am I just, just self centered here? Okay. <laughs> Both can be true, guys. <laughs> All right. So, what kind of a gift, like, what could be the best gift? Because there, there's this little, um, there's this little seed of pride in us that when we are sitting around and we are opening Christmas gifts, um, we want for our gift to be the best one. Like, like especially when I've noticed this, and I'll try to put this out here and not blow up the place, my arms kind of step near it, um, is with grandparents. Like, if grandparents are watching, like, competing grandparents watching grandparents in the presence of the who got the gifts this Which, so what is the best gift? And this has really been why. I wanted to take this season, this time, to focus our attention to something that we maybe wouldn't overlook, not overlook, but something that's on the back burner in our thinking, which is wisdom. Because when we read through Proverbs, as I was encouraged to do as a young guy, we read one chapter of Proverbs every day. Um, because there's, still, there's 31 chapters and 31 days of month and you can go through. And so as I was reading through that, I, I was reading the scripture and it kept saying, like, you should value wisdom more than anything. You should value wisdom, like, whatever you have to leave behind, like, get wisdom. It's better than gold. It's better than jewels. It's better than, than iPhones. And it's better than computers. Like, like, wisdom is the thing that you ought to get. Get wisdom. And I was... Uh, Astonishing, um, fascinating with the story of a guy named Solomon. And Solomon was a guy who was born into royalty. He, you know, was one of the silverish blues, not that lack of luxury. Um, I mean, family life was a little bit complicated, but he had everything that he needed. And he had this interaction with God, where God said, Hey, I'll give you one year. Whatever you want, name it, and I'll make it happen. So it's almost like a genie in the bottle type scenario, but you only get one, and you can't wish for more wishes. <laughs> so, what's the best gift to ask God for? Peace. Peace? Any, any other ideas? Like, like, just try to put yourself in, in, in his shoes for a moment. God kind of gives you one opportunity. Okay? There are a lot of things wrong in the world. There are a lot of things going on in your life. I want to give you one gift, and you get to pick it. You get to make your Christmas list, but there's only a blank for one thing. What is it that you ask for? Forgiveness. Forgiveness? Okay. This is awesome. Solomon picked wisdom. 
And what's fascinating to me is that he got that gift, and then as he writes about wisdom, he's like, this is the best thing. Like, you should really desire wisdom. But as it went along in his life, it didn't actually serve him as well as maybe it could have. Um, because, he, because he got into this idea of like, well, I'm the wisest man. God himself has said that I'm the wisest man in the world that's ever lived. And so I get to make all the decisions about me. And I'm the king of the country, so, and other nations are coming to see me. And so like, I got things together. Like, I've got things figured out. I know what the right thing to do is at the right time every time. And it still didn't go well for him. Uh, his family life continued to be messed up, and he continued to make bad decisions. And, and, and he ends up not only writing many of the problems that we have, he also writes a book called Ecclesiastes. We probably can write a book called Ecclesiastes, which is probably the saddest and most depressing book in the Bible. I am the kind of person that if I'm sad, like I have to listen to sad or angry music, and that makes me feel better for some reason. So I read Ecclesiastes when I put it on down. And it's just like everything is worthless, you're wasting your time, and somebody else is going to spend all your money, so why do you bother? The best thing you can do is go to work and, and whatever. Actually, he concludes with actually the same place where Proverbs is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of this thing. What is it that makes the difference? The wisest guy in the world didn't necessarily live that, that life, that, the perfect life. So what is it about having wisdom that can make it go so well or so poorly? It's really, really a question that I wonder as a young guy. Like I acknowledge my 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 position for many years. I'm, I'm the youngest one in the room many times. But I walk in, so I'm put in this position where I'm supposed to teach you or lead you, and like, you guys have so many more years on me. Now. What do I have to give? What gift can I give to these people who see so much? Um, and how can I do that in a way that brings honor to God? Because the cards on the table, all I have is what God's given me. And it's not because I have it. Let's, let's turn the scriptures together uh, and we'll read some together. I'd like to read in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to be on page 1188 if you're using the Bible. On page 1188, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Yes. Uh, God, there is no one like you. And um, we're grateful for this moment and these moments together to look at your word, um, to look into mystery, uh, and to see your face looking back at us. Lord, we pray that you would give us um, the faith to respond to you in the ways that you're leading us. And we pray that you would speak clearly so that we know what our next step is. I thank you for this morning and thank you for your words and your example. Amen. So, as, as we're beginning, if you've got an English standard version, I just would like to point out that 1 Corinthians, that first heading over verse 10, I'm not going to read verse 10, but the heading there just says divisions in the church. 
So we studied First Corinthians last year. Um, and one of the big things that's going on in the church at Corinth as Paul's writing this letter is that they're all divided. They can't they can't have a conversation with each other, they can't even have a communion together without fighting one another, without trying to like um, get one up on each other. So it's a super divided church, everybody's kind of tense and things like that. Um, and, he, and he begins this letter uh, with these words. I'm gonna begin reading in verse 18. He said, stop being divided and follow Jesus. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God's real wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There are a lot of things that are going on in this passage, and I don't know that I'm articulate enough to parse them all out in a way that will make sense to you in less than like three hours. So, in order to just focus in on what, what, we're, what we're looking at here, um, He's, he's making a distinction between Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, and we've, we've come across those ideas before. Um, but, but Jews are people that inherited the promises of God from, um, from God's interactions with them in the Old Testament. And if we know anything about the Old Testament, we know that God, when he's dealing with the Jews, he tends to do signs and miracles and wonders, like crossing of the Red Sea. Or um, when God does battle with the Egyptian gods and sends the plagues, like when God shows up to Israelite mind, he shows up in power and things happen, and things that don't naturally happen are happening. And so Jews are like, okay, you say you're from God, show me. I want to see it. Because, because the way that God confirms that he's actually doing something in the world is when he shows up in power and wonders and miracles and things like that. So as Paul shows up and starts to preach to Jews, Jews are like, well, you say, like, this Christ is the Messiah, but he died. Like, Messiah is supposed to die. He's supposed to set up a kingdom and rule forever. He's supposed to, like, do miraculous things. And, and we're still living under Rome. We still kind of pay taxes. Like, what do you mean he was the Messiah? <laughs> and it's, so having that conversation at one time, and having another conversation with people who come from the Gentile background, and, and what he says is, Jews seek signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. And this is a little bit more of, in line with how we tend to think about the world. They're looking for a rational argument. Tell me something logical. I want, I want to understand the logic. Uh, trace the thread for me. Build, build an argument. And, and the Greeks were really interesting because they not only care about your logic, they care about how well you could present it convincingly. They literally had no problem with somebody who made a bunch of lies as long as they were really, really interesting to listen to. <laughs> they put a high value on the ability to orient, the ability to talk well, and a low value on whether or not like, it was actually based in reality. I, we don't have anything like that today. You can 
and see how many it's going to be your body. So they love, they love, uh, they love to think about how things go together. So he says, "Look, when I come and I preach Christ, because that's my job here. Like I'm, I'm, I'm Paul the apostle, but if you follow me, I feel I want you to follow Jesus." You're looking for signs, and you're looking for a really, really well-reasoned argument that's communicated clearly and beautifully. But what I'm telling you is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he died. He was crucified. Like, we are familiar with that idea. We've celebrated Easter together before. We know that Jesus died. But, but consider what is being said. Um, the creator of the universe stepped into his creation and was born an infant and lived a normal life, ate, drank, went to the bathroom, and was murdered and rose again. That's a weird story. Um, I saw on Twitter a couple of, uh, it's been a couple of weeks ago now. Somebody had, had tweeted a picture of Gerald Tolkien's journal. So Tolkien was a guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings, which you're probably familiar with the movies, but they were books first, and then books are better. <laughs> so he wrote these, these massive books, and he was the kind of guy that really got excited about the details. He's like, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about these elvish people. And so he would create hundreds of thousands of years of history in order to be able to tell this one story. And then he would write a song about it and try to condense everything in together. And then that wasn't enough for him. He'd be like, you know what? They need to have like their own script. So he created an alphabet for them. And then if they're going to have their own script, they really need their own language. So he created his own, their own language. And he would do that for elves and dwarves. Anybody else who thought he needed to hear about the details. And the books are incredible. I encourage you to read them if you haven't read them before. But, but this, this thing that I saw on Twitter was, was just a, a snapshot of his journal and the things that he did today. You know, I mowed the grass, um, got Frodo into Mordor, and, and you know, we had dinner and stuff like that. And, and, and it's this really interesting idea to think about an author. Like, if you've read the books, like, when you read a book and you get sucked into it, you're just engaged in the characters. You're like, oh my gosh, like, the, the Frodo made it in that he's climbing up Mount Doom, but is he going to make it? Like, is the ring going to destroy him before he can destroy the ring? And like, what's going to happen? And then for Tolkien writing it, who didn't know that me or anybody else would ever read it, he just like, yeah, I'm going to the grass and you wrote Frodo in the morning. Is limited to what he can do. Like, the book is his, the story is his, he can write it out, but he's limited to what he can do because Frodo's got to find a way to get through the climax of the story, or survive or not, um, based upon the things that are happening in that world that he's created. And he's put a lot of detail into the world. The, the guy made up languages for a novel. Like, I can't wrap my head around the kind of person that he is. <laughs> But he's but he's 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 separate from the story that he's writing. If God, if history is God's story, then the author steps into the pages, and rather than writing a narrative around the main characters and how they might just pull one out of the hat, he lays his own life down and dies in the story under again. Tolkien can't die for Frodo. He can't throw the ring into the, into the mountain. He can only write. But God, the author of all of creation, the one who is outside of all of it, steps into it 
and says, I'm the solution to this. Does that feel a bit more astonishing when we think about it that way? So, when we say that Christ died, like that's a big deal. The author of creation perished in order to purchase the creation back from the sin that they chose willingly. <laughs> that's foolish. <laughs> Show me the logical. Where does that make sense in any kind of reasonable way? You you couldn't write this like if you were trying to write a story about like that just wouldn't you wouldn't do that. There's so many times in the Bible where, like, man, someone's faking this, like, they did a really bad job faking it. And this might be one of the things. Like, how does this make any logical sense? And yet, that's what he chose to do. The foolishness of God is wiser than that. And the weakness of God is stronger than that. We preach Christ crucified, there's a stumbling block to choose because he died. And follow to Gentiles because of God. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. So if God's wise character is embedded in all of his creation, Jesus' character is embedded in his creation. If God's wisdom guides those who reject it, then Jesus guides even those who reject it. If God's wisdom leads outsiders to kneel before him, then Jesus leads outsiders to kneel before him. And if God's wisdom runs contrary to our own corrupted insight, God's wisdom runs contrary to our own corrupted inside. Then Jesus runs contrary to our own corrupted inside. Every time I feel like I get familiar with Jesus, or I feel like I've got him in a box, and I encourage you to do this as well. When I, when I get comfortable living with Jesus, I read the Sermon on the Mount. From Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. Every time I think I got Christianity nailed, I look at what he said there and go, I have no clue. I need you to There are things that even when you're, you're, you've been walking in the face for a long time, you go, How do I do that? What, is, what does God want from me here? Like, how how I love my enemy as myself? Like, I, I'm in church leadership. What do you mean? Don't pray so that you get attention. Like, I'm trying to lead people in prayer. Like, what do you mean? Like, can I only pray in the closet? How does this work out? And there's things like that that are just... It captivates my, my affection in a new way over time. And the key feature of that sermon is a term. You have heard it said, but I say that to you. He takes what we're familiar with and what we know and uses that to teach us something that we're unfamiliar with because God's wisdom runs contrary to our own corrupted insight. Um, I'm fortunate enough not to, not to live with any kind of chronic illness other than allergies. Like, I'm allergic to anything that's not Florida, apparently. So you know, <laughs> we spent the week this week in North Carolina, like, I just got sick and uh, I'm allergic to nothing. So I'll be staying here. 
They don't have any kind of chronic illnesses. But, but imagine that you were born, and maybe it's easier for you than but imagine that you were born with a chronic illness. You were born sick. And sick is just your normal. And, and, and you wake up and you're sick, and you go to bed and you're sick, and you wake up in the middle of the night and you're sick, and it's just whatever the illness is, like it's just always there, always there with you. And someone tries to describe to you what it's like to be well. It's hard to get out of your own experience and imagine what that life could be like. And imagine that you have been sick chronically for your whole life, and then, and then Jesus walks up and says, I have made you well, I am making you well. What does that even mean? <laughs> if you're making me well, how do I know what is the sickness and what is, is health? I've never been healthy before. And so when I try health on, when I try true life on, it feels weird. This is not this is not what I've grown familiar with. But Jesus runs contrary to our own corrupted insight. The things that we look at the world as being settled, that Jesus says, I have a better way. Verse 26. For consider the calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So for Solomon, wisdom was both a gift and a curse. It was a gift that he could learn to rule wisely, and it was a curse because he got pretty puffed up about his ability to make the right decisions. And what is it that made a difference? What is it that makes wisdom, good wisdom, or foolish wisdom? It's Yahweh. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's the middle of wisdom, it's the end of wisdom. And he takes what is weak and uses it to shame what is strong. I'm careful in how we talk to people who we consider to be outside of the village. He uses the foolish and the world to shame the wise. That education just can't teach you. The things that the PhDs might know that you don't know if you don't have them. No. That means the most foolish issue you want. The faith in Christianity is based upon the teaching of the homeless guy.
And so the applications and the principles, poor people and educated people can do it. And he challenges everybody with the same words that that runs contrary to what I've read the So the gift then of Christmas is Christ. The gift then is the wisdom of God. My task this morning is to point to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that you stepped into the story that you were writing and that you made yourself the only and final solution to the problem that we brought to ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you give us the faith to trust you more and more with the things that we are afraid of, the things that we feel we're willing to buy, the sin that's always been entangled in this God, you help us to understand the power of the that you've accomplish. That you are accomplishing, that you will accomplish. Thank you for this moment, thank you for your name, I pray. Amen.